Today, we are finishing our, our series uh, titled Bring Home the Beacon. We've been talking all about work the last several weeks. And today, I want to talk about vocation and calling. You know, so many people go into their line of work because it was what they needed to do in order to get a paycheck. It was what they needed to do in order to put food on their table and to pay their mortgage. It's what I have to do to support my family. And for many people, the, the, the questions about vocation and calling, the questions like, what has God wired me to do? What has God uniquely created me to do? What has God given me as gifts and abilities that I could go out into the world and make a difference in the world? Some of these questions, a lot of us are like, you know, I can't even afford to ask those questions because I need to put food on the table. And what I would really love to do, what I feel like God might be calling me to do, I don't know if I can make money doing that. And so I can't afford to ask those type of questions. But I really do want to invite you to consider asking the questions of vocation and calling. What has God called me to do? What has God wired me to do? What are my unique giftings and my unique traits that God has put within me that might go and benefit the world? I really want you to invite you to consider asking these questions, and here's why. Several weeks ago, Emily and I were in New York City, and this is before this epidemic hit, and so the crowds, of course, in New York are just, are just crazy crowded, right? And there are people everywhere— and we had noticed this before. We had seen this in other times, but for us, it really hit us hard. There were people who were in crowds everywhere, you know, subway stations, um, subways, the, the crowded streets. Every single person that we saw was on a phone or had earbuds, and there was no interaction between humanity, right? It was staggering. You see, more and more people, I believe, have socially isolated themselves long before social isolation was a thing. And we see this in our families. We see it at the dinner table when the phone comes out. We've seen this when we, my, my, my children walk around with earphones in their head, uh, you know, in their, in their ears constantly, and the interaction is less and less and less because we are always self-consumed with what's in our own brain, within our own ears, within our own hands upon our phone. And one of the things that we're going to have to fight against during this, this mandate to be socially distant is that when we close ourselves off from the world, when all we hear is what we put in our ears and all we see is what we put upon our screens in front of us, when we stop recognizing that we are social people, then selfishness and individualism and individualistic needs, these are going to become the highest good. We see this on Black Friday. We see it before hurricanes. We see it before a global pandemic. We trample one another in the stores. We hoard at the grocery stores. We fight one another for the last roll of toilet paper and for the last loaf of bread. Because scarcity drives fear. And fear often drives rampant individualism. It drives rampant selfishness. Robert Bella, he wrote a book called The Habits of the Heart, and this is back in 1985. And he was already realizing, and he was already recognizing, he was already seeing how the social fabric of our society in America was already beginning to tear back in 1985. This is before cell phones, it was before earbuds. Even then, there was no shared life, he says. There were no truths or, or shared values that held our society together. Here's what he says. We are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. But our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. Simply speaking, and maybe obvious, when the individual is valued over the community, selfishness is always going to win. 
A world that is more and more individualistic and less and less social, in other words, will never be good for community, it will never be good for society, it will never be good for civilization. And so this is why I've been pushing for physical isolation, rather social isolation. My friends, we must remain social. We, we must remain connected. We must remain to care for each other and carry each other and help each other in this time of need. We must remain social. We must continue to think about the needs and the concerns of others outside our specific households. Physical isolation, yes. But please, my friends, let us continue to be social. Here's where this wraps around to the world and how God has wired you in our vocation and our calling. Near the end of his book, Bella suggests that there is a measure that might actually help to maintain the social fabric, that might help to put it back together. Here's what he says. To make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling. A return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all, and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. You see, one of my hopes when our society is stabilized and recovered is that we would recover the idea that our work is a vocation, that it is a calling, that is not merely a job that we get up to because we have to, to go and put a, get a paycheck and put food on our table. I hope that we can reimagine our work as a service to others. I hope that we can reimagine how our work matters in the world and how our work contributes to the overall functioning of society. That my work is an act of love towards you because it helps you live your life better. My hope in this series, actually, which you can access on our uh, website under the media tab or subscribing to our podcast, is that we might recognize that we are valuable to a society and the work that we do is valuable work and that it matters no matter what it is, that our work matters and that our work has dignity and it helps others and it helps civilization to thrive and it helps me love you better and it helps push God out in front. Consider, consider for instance, a simple cup of, co- cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee and so this is actually a very challenging exercise for me to partake in. But I do recognize how coffee brings people together so I actually do really value coffee. And and our hope, actually, if you've never been to Restoration, you haven't been around in a while, our hope, actually, is that we would have a a coffee shop here within our building, an expansion that we're hoping to build over the next couple of years that would house a coffee shop because we believe in the community and the environment that it would create for our community. It's a very missional idea, more on that as we progress over the coming months. But consider a cup of coffee. For those of you who like coffee, you may rely on coffee. Many of you, I would only imagine, are drinking a cup of coffee right at this very moment. Notice that a barista, in this case you, had to, <laughs> had to make it. But somebody else had to make the machine that the coffee came from, right? And somebody else had to design that machine. Somebody else had to engineer that machine. Considering a coffee shop, right, somebody else is going to have to build it. Somebody will have to pour the concrete, install the electricity, the plumbing, the windows, the walls, the floors. Somebody else will have to build chairs and tables and couches and coffee mugs and weave rugs. Somebody else is already currently designing it. And that's just scratching the surface, right? But, but someone will have to manage it and hire it and clean it. We'll need financial backers. Not, not to mention the coffee itself. We'll, we'll want to be responsible, which means that we're going to have to build relationships with farmers in other countries who are producing ethically sourced coffee. 
But the very thought of ethically sourced coffee means there are educators and politicians and those in pop culture talking about how the world's coffee is really dependent on slavery and how that shouldn't be the case. And so someone, maybe an educator or a parent or a politician, had to change the way that we think about coffee and change the way that we think about slavery. And then there are those farmers who had to cultivate the soil to produce the bean, and someone had to harvest it and package it and ship it here where someone is going to have to roast it just so that you could have your cup of coffee. Now, we could, of course, do this same exercise with everything that we have. Can can you imagine if you had to do all of that by yourself? It would take you a lifetime just to make a single cup of coffee and drink it out of something that's not your own hand. Civilization, in other words, isn't just an individualistic, socially isolated realm where we can exist without one another. The world cannot function that way because the world is a web of billions of people all working together to cultivate and to collaborate and to be interdependent on one another. And each person is contributing something unique to the puzzle of our civilization and our society. You matter, my friends. What you do matters. So when we consider a calling and a vocation, we're simply asking questions like this. Where is my place in it? And that web, the billions of people, how civilization functions and how the world works, where is my place in it? What do I uniquely bring to the table? What do I uniquely offer? How am I hardwired? Where does my personality and my giftings and my skills and my passions and my context and what I see is broken in the world, where does that intersect with my skills and my work? What does God, what did he make me to do? You see, we live in a day and age where so many people have no idea how to answer that question. What did God make me to do? I have no idea, and I don't even know where to begin to answer that question. But we also live in a day and age where there are more resources than ever before to help us answer that question. And so we are going to be linking in the comments, I believe, we're going to be linking a a, a number of opportunities for you to get to know yourself, to learn about yourself, various free surveys that you can take that will you know, just help you understand how you are wired, how you are hardwired. How does God created me uniquely? We'll do it in a post, in a different post, sure. Not in these comments, okay. So follow us on on Facebook, or we'll, we'll post it to our website even, so you can access it. Take these tests. I would encourage you in all of your free time that you all of a sudden have. Take these tests. Over the next uh, couple weeks, we're going to be interacting with you, helping you understand more of yourself, um, online platforms to do that. Take these tests. Let us know how you fared. Let us know. Let's be talking. Let's be learning about who we are. All these resources are free. Some of them you may have to start an account for, but they're all free to take. And they're going to help you understand who you are regarding your personality, your interests, your ministry, how you relate to others, the work that maybe God has created you to do, the way that you love one another. I mean, all, all of these things will be insightful to help you understand who you are, and they'll be available this week on our website and our social media platforms. The reason this is all important, though, is because discovering your calling is is just about as much finding about who we are, like how has God made me, as much as it is figuring out what we were created to do. A calling, in other words, isn't something you choose. It's something you unearth. It's something you need to excavate and and discover and dig out of your soul. It's already inside of you. You know, we usually ask kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? 
And if someone were to ask me that when I was a child, I would have said, you know, I want to be a professional, professional basketball player. And so I put all of my hopes and dreams into becoming a professional basketball player. And then in 10th grade, I was cut from the JV, <laughs> the JV team. And all of my hopes and dreams vanished along with me being cut from that program. See, I, th- I think a, a better question would have been, who are you? How are you wired? And what do you think God created you to do when you grew up? What did God have in mind when he created you? These are the questions of vocation. These are the questions of calling. These are the questions that when they're answered and discovered are going to make you want to jump out of bed in the morning and run to that place to do that thing that God had created you uniquely to do. So many of us fight this because of the fear of the knots. Fear of not having a job, fear of not having a paycheck, fear of not being able to live or eat, and so we settle for just doing that thing that we hate, but hey, it puts food on the table. And so we fight who God created us to be and what God created us to do, but so often that will come back to eat us alive. And some of you are experiencing that every single day as you go to that place to do that thing. It is eating you alive inside because you know you were not created to be doing this. If you're an introvert and you go into sales and you're with people 10 hours a day, my friends, it's going to suck you dry. If you're a thinker with an appetite for learning but you go into manual labor, it is going to drive you insane. If you're a natural leader and you love pushing people forward towards a goal, but you end up doing research or writing reports or doing administrative work, then it is going to drive you crazy. If you're detailed and organized and love spreadsheets, but are told to be a motivational speaker and give speeches before large crowds and inspire them, it may scare you to death. Now, I realize the whole conversation is a very privileged one to have. I mean, most of the world never has the opportunity to even ask themselves questions like this. That there aren't options available to them to even move beyond what they're currently doing. And there comes a point when we just have to be thankful that we have a job. But my hope, my hope for you, is that we can get to a place where what we do flows out of who we are. What we do would flow out of who we are. Because, my friends, this life is too short to get up and to go to that place and do the thing that drains you every single day. This is going to lead to burnout just as much as overworking will lead to burnout. Burnout isn't always the result of giving too much. Sometimes burnout is the result of trying to give something you don't have to give in the first place. You know, I experienced this. When, when I talk about our journey of coming to Pennsylvania from Minnesota to start Restoration Church, uh, there are times when people tell me that I am crazy, crazy for leaving the context, crazy for leaving what I was doing. I served as a college pastor at a campus at a Christian university in Minnesota. And so let me just paint a picture for you about what a typical day might have been like for me. I would usually roll in around 8 a.m. I'd have breakfast with a student. See, the, the university gave each of the pastors 10 meals a week. That's two meals a day, by the way, for the five days that we were there throughout the week. And so I had two meals to eat with students, right? We would go and we would, I would mentor them. I would disciple them. We'd talk about Jesus. We'd get to know each other. It was incredible, right? And this dining center was insane, right? The dining center was just incredible. There was a buffet at every single meal, seven hot plate options, Americana, Tex-Mex, Chinese, pizza, salad bar, dessert bar, custom mac and cheese every single lunch period. Everything was made to order. And so I spent two hours of every day discipling students, talking about Jesus, with students who wanted to talk about Jesus. Now, now granted, I gained 20 pounds, at least 20 pounds, <laughs> okay, maybe I gained 30 pounds in my time there. 
so after breakfast, you know, I would, um, I would roll into my office, I would check my email, I would maybe prepare a sermon that I was to give later, I would prepare a lecture that I was to give later in a class, maybe I would, I would um, prepare my day, go through notes, and then we, we would, we'd have chapel three days a week at 10.15, I'd go to chapel. Much like a Sunday experience here at church, we would, we would sing worship songs, we would praise God, and then we would have a, a sermon. Now, by this time, it's 11 o'clock, right? And so a lot of students are heading to lunch, and so I would usually have a lunch meeting where I would go and talk more about Jesus and help kids process life. I'd eat more food. I'd put on more weight. So to offset the amount of food I was eating, I spent much of my lunch hours uh, playing basketball with faculty and staff. And now you're thinking, wait, 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 didn't you just have your lunch hour in the dining center with a student? No, that was work over food. Now it's my break time, right? So I go and I play basketball every day. And I also served as an adjunct professor. So after basketball, I'd go and I'd teach a class. Now it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. At this time, I'd have an appointment with students. But a lot of students didn't just want to sit down and, and talk about life. And so oftentimes, we would go play disc golf. We had an 18-hole disc golf course on our campus. We'd go play disc golf. We'd go on a hike around campus. We'd go play ping pong or shoot pool. Or we'd go lift weights. Or, or we would go and uh, sit in the, the campus coffee shop and talk about Jesus some more. And once 4.30 rolled around, I would pack up and I would go home. Now, when I tell people this, they usually get really irritated and really frustrated because why would you ever leave a job like that? Why would you ever abandon that? Why would you ever go and do something other than that? That is a dream scenario. I loved my job. I loved my job. I worked with phenomenal people. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it for about three years. And about three years into this job, I began to get bored. I became discontent. You know, something in me began rising to the surface. I I knew my work was important. I was discipling kids. I was teaching them about Jesus. It was very, very important. I knew it was important. But there was something deep within me that was not being addressed. Some part of the way I was made, I was ignoring that part. And in this discontentment, something was being unearthed, and it was being excavated, and it was being discovered. It had always been there, but I had never really listened to it. Something in me was screaming at me. Something needed to change, but I didn't know what to do with my discontentment. I didn't know what to do with what God was trying to say to me, and God was trying to tell me. I, I literally felt like, like Elsa from Frozen 2, right? She, she heard this siren call, and she kept pushing it away until... She had to venture out into the unknown, and she would not be content. She would not be happy until she followed that siren call into the unknown and discovered what was calling her. There was a compulsion in her, and she never would have been satisfied until she found it and figured it out. And that was me exactly. I would wake up, and I would go to this amazing job that I loved, but there was something so deep within me that was saying, Ross, you are wasting away here. There's something more that I've created you for. What are you doing in this place? Why are you just taking this easy life? There is something more that I've called you to do, and I would not be satisfied until I found it. That was me. And in some regards, I think it's all of us. But we shut it out because of the fear of the knots and the fear of the unknown. We think, how am I wired? Well, I don't, I don't know how I'm wired. I mean, what am I called to do? I don't know what I'm called to do. What am I created to do? I don't know. Can I make a living at it? I don't know. Can I make money at it? Can I feed my family? Can I pay my mortgage doing it? I don't know. And so we keep it at arm's length because we're afraid. You know, one of my favorite stories in Scripture comes from 1 Kings. Uh, Elijah, the prophet, he had just defeated 400 prophets of a pagan god, uh, Baal, uh, Jezebel, the wicked queen of, of Israel at the time. 
and a worshiper of the pagan god Elijah just destroyed, vowed to kill Elijah because all of her prophets now have been wiped out. And so Elijah, he's, he's afraid. He runs for his life. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And while running for his life, he ducks into a cave and he, here God begins to speak to him. God begins to reveal something to him. But first, before God begins to speak to him, there's a tornado that passed by the mouth of the cave, and then the earth shook, and then there was a great fire upon the mountainside. But we're told that God wasn't in any of these magnificent, magnificent displays of power. Rather, God came to Elijah in a still, soft voice. So, very well-meaning Bible teachers throughout my years try to convince me that when God speaks to you, he only ever speaks in a still, soft voice. And so if you want to hear what God is trying to say to you, go out in the wilderness, be quiet, shut up, turn your phone off, leave it at home, disconnect from all things so that you can hear. And there are times when I've done this, and it is so true, and it is so important that we have times like this. And actually, one of my great prayers for this experience of this, this isolated period is that we would learn to be still. And that we will learn to rest, and that we will learn to take it slower, and that we will learn to Sabbath, and we will learn to listen to God and give Him control, and that we will learn to be closer to Him through it all. There are times when we absolutely have to do this, that we have to cut out the distraction, and we have to focus on what God is calling us to do. But, but I do remember that there is this time in, in Job, for instance. Job was, was, you know, his life had been ruined. And he never would have heard a still, soft voice because he was determined and he was arrogant and he was prideful. And so God has to speak to him through a tornado. And, and when God gives the Israelites the, the law, you know, they're dancing at the base of the mountain around a golden calf. They've already rejected God. And so God has to shake the mountain. He couldn't have spoken to them from, through a still, soft voice. And then when Moses is out in the desert, right, listening to, to, to God, God lights up the only thing that could be lit on fire, a burning bush. Remember, Elijah was fleeing for his life. There was so much fear and anxiety rising up in him, gripping him. And so God, if he would have appeared to him in a tornado or a fire or an earthquake, would have caused a heart attack. And of course, God comes to him in his time of need in a still, soft voice to reassure him that he is not alone, that he is with him, that he will care for him. God is always speaking. But the way that he is trying to get our attention is unique to me, and it's unique to you, and we may not even recognize how God is trying to get our attention. Maybe it's a sunset that you just saw, and you just stood in awe of this incredible sunset, and you said, okay, God. Or it's a situation that seemed coincidental or through another person. Maybe it's even just a bumper sticker that you're driving down the road. Maybe it's while you're jogging Maybe it's while you're standing in front of the ocean. Maybe it's when you get a pay raise. Maybe it's while you're reading God's word. Maybe it's when you're listening to the radio and that song comes on again and again and again. And every time you turn it on, it's the same song over and over. Maybe, maybe you hear the, the same section of scripture repeated endlessly over and over and over again. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's getting let go from your job. Maybe it's a worldwide epidemic. I pray, I pray that we will not waste this opportunity that God has given us to draw closer to him. I pray that we would take advantage of the weeks that we have been given to be isolated and to be still and that we would seek God and listen for his voice in this time. Because God is trying to get our attention through all things. Yes, through pain and confusion, through pandemics. Yes, even through the good things in life as well. God is always trying to break through our situation and our circumstances and tell us something. He's always trying to intervene to get our attention about his character and his care and his concern and his love for us. 
and what he wants to accomplish in us and through us and how he wants us to participate in his redemptive story, sometimes he's going to speak softly. Sometimes he's going to light a bush on fire. But we need to keep our eyes open and our ears open for what God is trying to do in us and for us and through us. But if we are not listening when he speaks, then even if we hear, even if we are available to what God is saying, if we are not listening actively and saying, God, I'm willing to do what you call me to do, then it's not going to matter. And for me, in order to listen, I did, I did have to get away. I had to get away from the noise of the world. And so I rented a cabin in the middle of the woods, and I stayed there for 48 hours listening. And the first 12, 12 hours were excruciating because I'm an extrovert, and they were painful, and they hurt. And I could not shut my brain off. I couldn't hear over the noise of my inner thoughts. And then 12 hours in, my brain just went silent. And all of a sudden, I could listen, and I could hear what God was trying to say. And I did not hear an audible voice, but there was something deep inside of me that was beginning to be excavated and unearthed and rise to the surface. And there were promptings that I have to go look up at certain sections of Scripture that I hadn't read in years, and I had clarity about why I was bored, and I had clarity about why I was discontent, and I filled an entire journal with all of my thoughts. Now, most of us don't get the burning bush experience, but... Some of us might. Some of you might get the burning bush experience. So we need to be people who are asking and seeking and knocking for God to reveal what his will is for us. We need to get alone from, uh, and away from the noise of the world and away from the social media and away from our cell phones and away from the busyness and the craziness of life. And we need to fast and pray and be quiet and listen. And what I heard, to sum up pages and pages of a journal— was that I was made to tell people about Jesus and help them uncover life in Jesus. You see, I had a job that afforded me to do part of this. But everybody that I interacted with on a daily basis already knew Jesus, and for the most of them knew Jesus since their birth. They'd grown up in Christian homes. But God had called me to go to those who were far from God and invite them into his life. And I was spending all of my days with people who had never knew life without God. And so Emily and I began praying about this, and we decided that we would move to the region of America that knew Jesus the least, and we would start inviting people into the life of Christ. See, a church plant, statistically, is the best way, best way to introduce Jesus to those who don't already know him. And so to close, I I just want to share with you some of the questions that I was prompted to ask during my unearthing of my calling. I went through my journal this past week. I was just digging through it, and here are the questions that I had jotted down. What breaks your heart? And for me, it was a, is a world far from God. I think this is such an important question because what breaks your heart, at least on this side of eternity, my friends, it's never going to be fully alleviated. You will always have a job to do if you pursue that thing that is breaking your heart. So what breaks your heart? For me, it was a world far from God, including Christians. And the thought of non-Christians towards Christians because of Christians broke my heart. I wanted to redefine the church for a generation that had all but considered the church irrelevant. I wanted to reintroduce the world to the true heartbeat of Jesus Christ, to the love of God and his calling for us as human beings. Another question that I asked myself is, well, what do you love? What, what do you love to talk about? What energizes you? What ignites passion in you? And for me, it was apologetics, like defending the faith. But who are apologetics for? Apologetics aren't for Christians. Apologetics are for those who are far from God. Coming up with answers to the questions that the world has and directing them towards Jesus Christ. 
determining what the human heart and the universal human experience is all about. I love figuring out unique ways to address the universal human experience and to point people towards Jesus. And so what do you love? What energizes you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What would you just love to go and do? What ignites passion in you? I'd ask the question, well, Ross, what are you good at? And what are your interests? You know, I, I began college as a youth pastor uh, major. I quickly realized that I didn't relate, that my ministry would be more towards, towards, towards adults. And so I switched my major to communications. Why? I, I don't know. Uh, that didn't last long, though, so I switched it to psychology. Why? I, I, I don't know. Now I do, right? Then, then I landed on biblical and theological studies, but all of these shaped and honed what I do now. They all played a, pee, a, a part in, in discovering what God was unearthing in me and calling me to do. They all play a part in it. But the point is that I explored. You know, I tried different things that I thought I was interested in. I realized it was more of a hobby than a vocation, and I, I didn't mourn that. I, I didn't mourn that I had, you know, wasted three months trying to figure out what God was calling me to do. I actually celebrated it because I didn't consider it a failure. I just took one step closer to realizing what I was not called to do. And so I was able to check that off my list and move on to the next thing. How about what does the world need? What does the world need? And for me, the, the world needs Jesus. And so I was confined to a bubble that was saturated with him. And so that really broke my heart, that the world was in need of Jesus, and yet I was in this context that already knew Jesus. And so my heart was breaking over that. What is God blessing? You know, when I was in seminary, I was asked to preach at a retreat. The very first time that I ever preached, I had, I had never done this before, but I, I, I stood before this, this crowd of people, and I preached, and afterwards, tons and tons of people came up to me and said, Ross, you, you, you have a gift. You need to hone that. You need to develop that. You have a gift. People said the same thing after I taught, and when I spoke in chapel, teaching scripture and communicating the gospel, this was something that God was calling me to do. And then, in line with this, what are people saying who know you? What are, what are those who know you saying about you? Sometimes people who love us see things in us that we don't actually see in ourselves. And so we need to listen to those people. If you're married, my friends, listen to your spouse. If you have parents, listen to them. If you're in a house group, listen to your friends who love you and care for you. And ask them, what do you see in me? And then honestly listen, no matter what they say. Because what they say may be disappointing a little bit to you. But what they say was going to help you hone your calling and figure out what God is calling you to do. And if people affirm your desires, then consider that direction. Do they caution you? Then consider that direction. Now, obviously this comes with some opinions and some biases, so you have to be careful. There are plenty of people who told us moving across the country was a crazy idea. And that's where this next one comes in. What is the spirit stirring in you? This is why listening is so important. This is why you need to get away. This is why you need to shut it all off. This is why you need to fast and to pray and to listen because God is going to begin to stir things in you. And merely listening and doing nothing with what you're hearing will irritate your soul and create a lot of regret later in life. But I tell you, this is a challenge because sometimes the Spirit will call you to do something you do not want to do. Just ask the prophets of the Old Testament. None of them wanted to be a prophetic voice, but God called them to do so and to be so. For us, Emily was convinced of two things when she was in college. She was convinced that she was never going to marry a Minnesotan, and she was convinced that she was never going to marry a pastor, right? She grew up a pastor's kid. She saw what that life, she thought that life was going to entail, and so she didn't want any, any part of that. But throughout the process of our dating and being on this journey, 
she too sought counsel. She too asked herself a lot of these same questions. She too listened to God's voice and the stirring of her spirit. And she too had to ask what breaks her heart. And we came to this conclusion together. I was not like the caveman who took Emily by the hair and dragged her across country. This is something that we did together. And that's a big part of it as well. If you're married, then ask for common confirmation around what God is calling you to do. God confirmed it in both of us. And there is absolutely no way, my friends, that our ministry, that our church would be thriving without Emily's leadership, without her effective care of people and the direction that she helps us take, the strategies, the structures that she helps develop. She is an integral part of restoration. She is just as much of leader of this place and of us as I am. And so here's my hope for you, that you might ask these questions. Seriously consider them. Wrestle with them. If you're one of those people who is like, oh man, I gotta get up again. I hate getting up to go to that place, to do that thing. There is no life there. Then ask yourself these questions. And I hope that we might be a people who are bold enough to follow where God leads us, to do the things that the world may seem a little radical. And we will follow where God is leading us. We will follow the voice that he is calling us. And we would do something significant because God has created us as a people to do something significant, to do something that matters. And I pray that you would see that in your work. And if you don't see it in your work, my friends, let's talk. Let's get you to a place where you rise up out of bed in the morning and say, I get to go do that thing. And I'm going to trust God to provide all the details. More conversation, much more on our Facebook page later this week about all of the things that we've discussed today. Thank you for joining us today online. I hope to see you again next time. God bless.